when I was a little kid, uh, I knew that we had a small TV. It, it sat up on top of a fridge. It was black and white. We had to use pliers to adjust the knobs, adjust the channel. I didn't know, though, it was something to be ashamed of until some friends told me so. It was just the TV we had. Later on, after we'd upgraded to a, a bigger one, color. I didn't know it was embarrassing not to have cable until some other kids told me about that. I didn't know that every family doesn't pray before they eat a meal. Uh, or saying, I love you, when parting from family members. That's, that's, that's not something every household does. We've all had those moments of realization, right? When the order that we took as normal, and so that we assumed it, it must be right, in some sense, it's just normal, turns out to be far from normal. It can be, it can be things we discover were good that we had. It can be things we discover are not good that were normal to us. We can't recognize our family's bad manners, uncivil behavior, strange taboos about this or that, odd quirks, until others come into our circuit, whether they come to our house or we go to theirs. We can't know what's, that it's not normal. Do you remember realizing how strange your own family is? Young people, maybe this is happening right now. I don't know. How do we get our bearings on how we ought to live? How do we do that? Because it seems like the world must tend towards ever-increasing chaos to estrangement, to atomization, as families and people become more and more particular, more and more unique, more and more strange. People have always known about this, always. It, it, this is a commonplace of ancient philosophy to answer, to, to sort this out. In pre-modern societies, even today, pre-modern societies, the answer to this problem of atomization, or that's a silly word, uh, chaos. The answer is strong custom. That's been what philosophers have offered. We get our bearings by very powerful societal norms, and especially at the hot, highly local level, what we in this village do. So this village or this tribe has a way of life uh, with answers to all the unwritten rules, uh, answers to the questions, that is, and countless unwritten rules. So in this tribe, we have small TVs. And this is just normal that we have small TVs. In this tribe, we pray before meals. Uh, in this tribe, we, we only uh, will take a drink after we've eaten three bites at our meal. So, strange customs. But where strong customs disappear, chaos ensues. Where the guiding norms, the guiding customs disappear, chaos ensues. Uh, and that's been the tendency of modern society. That's no mystery. Hundreds of people have recognized that. Ever-increasing breakdown. So don't be surprised that 
in modernity, in modern America, tribal tendencies have reemerged. Don't be surprised. Uh, with each tribe having a new set of very strict rules, ready to kick out those who don't abide by the strict rules. We are returning to a world, it seems, very much more like the paganism of antiquity than has, we've seen for a thousand years. The New Testament and the Old Testament is starting to have some resonances with us that it has not had for a thousand years. The gods wear different garb. They go by different names. But the worship of perishing things is the same. Things that are disappearing. Well, we could, could get despairing about that. No! Rather than grow despairing about this, I want to say, at long last, perhaps we will now hear God's voice distinctly again. God's voice will sound like God's voice. Satan's strategy in the West has been pretty successful uh, to offer cheap and deadly imitations of holy things. So he aimed to woo God's people with shiny things or to seduce us with good things turned to evil purposes. Inordinate. And for lots of us adults, church life has, has made it difficult for us to get our bearings as Christians uh, because moralism has been so present. These, this similar but not quite God's voice. Moralism sounds so close to God's word at so many points. Or emotional warmth. It, it, uh, it seems so like love for God and others. When we feel warm, we feel fuzzy, we feel sentimental, it, it seems kind of close to grace. And so growing up really comfortably, we've got a taste for counterfeits. We grew up, if you are, I don't know, maybe 20 and up, you've grown up with a taste for the counterfeit. It's just been offered to us in normal church life. But I'm saying maybe, just maybe, the currents of our time are making us a bit more aware, a bit more able to distinguish what is of God and what is of the perishing. We begin to taste that that's actually counterfeit. And we can't get, we can't get to this recognition through comfort. You, we can't wake up through comfort. We get there through discomfort. This was one of the qualities that most marked the people of God in the early centuries, uh, during the first hundred years of the church in particular. It was core to their teaching. The two ways, they called it. Recognizing this difference, the two ways. James described them as heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom, which is unspiritual, of the devil. Peter called it living as strangers of the world or living as friends of the world. Two ways. John called the two ways the way of life and the way of death. 
And he called it walking in the light or walking in the darkness. And of course, Paul followed Jesus in calling these deadness. Being dead and being alive. It appears almost as if these, these two ways assume two different realities. Whole, two different worlds. Anchored in different realms. So that you could not confuse the values of the one with the values of the other. So stark were they understood. So stark uh, did the apostles teach this difference. That it was two worlds. Well, what the early church taught, it came from Jesus. What the apostles were passing on was the teaching of Jesus by the spirit of Jesus. And they taught this from Jesus in two different but related senses. Christian teaching came from Jesus' words. The apostles passed on Jesus' words. But this understanding of two ways also came from him as the word sending his spirit. And that we're going to be looking at this, talking about this today and next week. Understanding, recognizing, living in a different way comes from his words and from his spirit. So next weekend is the Feast of Pentecost. And that's where we celebrate when God gave this new reality. Uh, he gave a new reality of a new covenant with him, a new way of relating to him. That's the day when he introduced, by the giving of his spirit, an invitation into living according to a new reality. He drew people into that everlasting reality. And so by giving his spirit, he anchored them to the heavenlies. He anchored them to an everlasting realm. But before that, before Pentecost came about, Jesus told them about it. And he explained parts of what it would mean. So in anticipation of the Feast of Pentecost next week, let's look at how Jesus talked about it ahead of time so that as we move towards it, we'll anticipate, we'll be alert, we'll be more aware of what we ought to expect as participants in that reality. So we're looking at John chapter 16. That was read for us. If you have scripture, please do look. John chapter 16. Recorded there, probably, it seems contextually, that very likely still in the upper room of that house in Jerusalem where they shared the Last Supper, Jesus continues to teach them. And he told them, beginning in verse 4, I've said these things to you so that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I didn't say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Guys, this has been the plan all along. He's assuring them. I'm going, but that was the plan. I couldn't tell you that ahead of time. But I'm going to tell you now, 
so that when it comes about, you won't have any doubt about it. You'll know, no, this is right. In particular, Jesus is saying that his ascending to the Father, his going into the heavenly realms, and not being with them personally, not continuing to to hang out with them, and not establishing a, a direct geographical spatial rule that that is the plan. Because they could have, they thought otherwise. So when they start wishing that he was with them again, because surely they're going to wish, man, if only he were with us telling us what to do now, where to get food, where, where we ought to go next, if only he were just right here with us, he could make all the decisions. So when they start feeling that, they'll know, because he told them, it's the plan. It's supposed to be like this. Even more, he says, it is to your advantage that I go away. Verse 7, it's to your advantage. It's better for you that I go away. Right now, you're more interested in being left alone. You're troubled about that rather than in where I'm going. He says, none of you are asking about what that means or where, what that's about. But that's actually the more important fact. You're concerned about being without me, just here. For if I do not go away, he says, the helper, the advocate, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So he's explaining here the conditions of the new reality that's going to come about. They want him to be personally present with them. Of course they do. Of course, that's what they've had. Jesus walking with them, hanging out with them, revealing God to them. They want that to continue. But he is saying, if, if I were to remain bodily present with you all the time, within this perishing order, I can only be in one place at a time. One place. The kingdom will be localized. The kingdom will be right there in Jerusalem, within Israel. You might say it would be tribal. And that's what they want. <laughs> of course. Yeah, give us that. Local kingdom. Tribal kingdom. But that is not the plan to restore creation. That was never the plan. It's not the plan now. The new reality requires the glorified Christ. Renewed Adam to sit on the throne of God in the heavenlies. Above all creation, above the heavens and the earth. And then by sending his spirit in the world, he can unite people to him of every tribe, nation, and tongue. Not just a localized tribal kingdom. He can, when he's seated on the throne, everyone can be part of it. Uniting them to himself. All the peoples can be united to him and thereby united to one another. A global kingdom. Far better than Jesus having one small community, limited by who can be within proximity to him. 
people of every nation and tongue. So it is to everyone's great advantage for him to ascend the throne and to rule through his spirit. And by his spirit, he's a closer companion because he brings a whole new world into a heart. It's nice to be standing next to someone to have that person's soul within you, that's a level of magnitude of unity that we can't really get our minds around. So in verses 8 to 11, Jesus describes some features of this new reality. Again, this is ahead of time so that when it happens, they'll understand what's, what's taking shape. And when he comes, this advocate, this counselor, the spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. First, concerning sin. Because they do not believe in me. What the Holy Spirit will do, the Holy Spirit will bring conviction of sin. That is, another translation, he'll convince the world of sin. Because they don't trust in Jesus. In, in other words... It takes God for a person to recognize sin. It takes the goodness of God for a person to recognize sin as sin. That is, as something destructive. God wrote it down in the law. He built it into our design. But fallenness obscures that. Um, there's a theological term for this. It's called the, a noetic fall. Our minds are falling. Um, it, it's not just, so we have the design built into us, but our fallen minds give us a bent towards not seeing, not understanding, sin as sin. So even though God wrote it down in the law, it's by the working of his spirit that he awakens people to recognize sin, to, to see it. So should we be surprised when a person who doesn't know God likes sin and doesn't see a problem with it? That, that should not be surprising to us. How could it be otherwise? The word tells us that human consciences become so seared and so dulled that even God's built-in compass breaks down. And then if a person lives in a culture without customs that echo the truth, as ours is moving, right? Many cultures do not have uh, sustained echoes of the design, echoes of the truth. And so uh, they don't have customs that force them or require them to reject sin, to avoid evil. So they'll just embrace it. Um, you could think of many examples, uh, cultures around the world that um, embrace wickedness by custom. And so that is just handed on as a norm. Other cultures that have echoes of God's law will force, will require people to avoid evil. They're not, they're not doing it because they, they just want to avoid evil. It's because custom is guiding them to do so. It seems normal. That would be, it's like living in a household 
as we started with, like living in a household that assumes norms of disrespect. It's just normal for us to disrespect the parents or to ridicule each other. It just seems normal. So the Holy Spirit is necessary to awaken a person to sin, to see sin as sin, and to see that they are in rebellion against Christ. Because they do not believe in him, he says. Without the Spirit, rebellion is of no concern. Now in verse 10, the Spirit will convict concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. The Spirit will convict concerning righteousness because I go to the Father. That phrase, concerning righteousness, that means the right ordering of things. Rightness. The Spirit convicts concerning the right order of things. So, because Jesus goes to the Father, the Spirit will be then, and the Spirit is now at work, convicting people about the restoration of the world, about the right ordering of things. So it, it, it is right that the Son should rule heaven and earth. That is his, that's his right. It is right. It's fitting. It's right that all things should be subjected to him, things in heaven and things on earth. It's right that every person should find meaning and purpose. That's good and right. Every person should find hope and peace, which they do by rightly relating to their maker, the one who made and rules over all things. There is no right ordering of things apart from Jesus on the throne and apart from all things being subjected to him. And Jesus says, it's right that the world makes sense when it's lived according to the Creator's design. And that all that wisdom, that's a lot of wisdom, all that truth can only come back to human beings by the indwelling Spirit. We don't just stumble into, oh yeah, yeah, we, we should follow Jesus and His ways and that that's the way things should work. But that's how we get meaning. We don't get there without the Holy Spirit of God. Adam and Eve shunned it at the beginning. But through the Spirit, God gives back that wisdom, that heavenly wisdom. His design that each of us should be a renewed Adam or a renewed Eve. A person remade with the, the life and light of God in us. And there is a world of righteousness to be lived but we can only enjoy it if Christ is on the throne and his spirit brings us to it. That's one of the realities Jesus is saying. When the spirit comes, he will restore that sense. So finally, verse 11, the spirit brings conviction concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged or the prince of this world is judged. What is he saying? The Spirit brings conviction about the judgment of the ruler of this world. That is interesting. He's saying that it's only by the Spirit's power that we can see 
and can accept the reality of Satan's defeat. If you look around, it doesn't look like he's defeated. If we think about the, the 20th century, if you were a person of the spirit in Nazi Germany, or Stalinist Russia, or Maoist China, or North Korea, or Vietnam, or Cambodia, pick your place. It sure looked like Satan was winning. When all your family was hauled off and either executed or languishing in a prison, it looked like Satan was winning. Everything your eyes told you said, there's no end to this. In our own country today, one could assume Satan is winning. I hear people saying that. Satan is winning. Well, the same conclusion could easily have been reached in the first century, the second century, the third century. In the seventh and the eighth centuries, Islam was sweeping over the world, and it looked like it, there is going to be global Islam. But Satan is judged and is defeated. That's the truth. It's only by the power of the Spirit that we can see it. It's only the people of God who can see that. Who can see that evil is defeated. The Spirit enables true sight about anything. But Jesus is pointing to this specifically. Because it's vision beyond appearances. It's only by the Spirit that a suffering person can see what Peter says. In keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Or what Paul says, with that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore we speak for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, passing away, perishing, but the things that are unseen are eternal. How necessary for our brothers, our sisters in Rwanda, as they pass through fire and Satan's working and the seeming victory of evil. How important was it to know this is not Satan's victory? Jesus wins. This evil is condemned. This evil that is vaunting itself, walking around with pride, is crushed, is defeated. Satan, you don't win. As we, the kids, as we said, you don't win. In fact, you are defeated now because Jesus is on the throne. The blood of Jesus means we are forgiven and free. And Satan, you are powerless to condemn us. You're powerless. Evil is judged. Evil is condemned. Righteousness is being restored because Jesus is seated on the throne. And he has sent his spirit into our hearts. That's the new reality. That the, spirit of God, that the Spirit of God brought to the disciples on the day of Pentecost and brings to us now. 
We, still, we are still totally dependent on the Spirit of God giving us those truths and enabling us to live according to them. As Jesus says in verse 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. He did that uniquely for the apostles the things that are to come. But through them, he gives us those same truths and he makes them live for us. We need God's spirit to live according to the reality he's brought us into. We can't do it without his spirit. It's not, not only does the spirit draw us into that way of life, but we continue to need him to enable us to see it. Small things and big things. When we ignore the spirit and we approach life according just to what we see, according to the norms that are around us, we end up living in blindness. It's like we go back to using the broken tools of our fallen life. Back to valuing according to a broken measure. Back to measuring according to distortions. The, the values of a perishing order. So it's like putting on distorting goggles and trying to... You ever seen those? Distort, distort the world. Well, we do that. If we ignore the spirit, that doesn't change us as newly created beings. It doesn't change our identity as new creations because we've been made new. If God has sent his spirit into our hearts, we are new creations, but it makes us stupid. Ignoring the spirit makes us stupid. Sin makes us stupid. When we could find the comfort and the peace and the strength that come from the spirit and the kingdom of God, when that's ours, that's our way. It's foolish to, to, to try to gain a different identity, to try to pursue aims that are crumbling and will always disappoint. That's dumb. It, and it just won't fit. It will, it will be unfitting. So finally, let me encourage you, in preparation for Pentecost, Decide to live as who you are. We are celebrating next week our identity. We're celebrating the reality that we have been brought into. Decide to live according to that. Call on God to fill you with his spirit freshly. Call on him so that you'll see your sin so that you'll see the goodness and glory of Christ on the throne, righteousness, and so that you'll see the truth that evil no longer reigns and evil no longer has dominion over you. What I'm saying is, ask God for the Spirit to do what the Spirit does, and he will always answer that prayer. Let's pray. Lord, You are the revealer of every good and perfect thing.
And we are desperately dependent on you to live well, to live uh, according to the gift of life that you have given us. So thank you for your spirit. Thank you that you do enable us to see and that you do awaken us to realities that we just go to sleep about. Awaken us, Lord. Awaken us, we pray in Jesus' name.